Welcome to Music History Monday for June 21st, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is The Master Singers of Nuremberg. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the premiere performance on June 21st, 1868, 153 years ago today, of Richard Wagner's music drama, The Master Singers of Nuremberg. The performance took place at the National Theater Munich, which today is the home of the Bavarian State Opera. Conducted by Franz Liszt's student and son-in-law, and Wagner's protege, Hans von Bülow, the performance was sponsored and paid for by none other than the Mad King himself, Ludwig II of Bavaria. Accepting Wagner's second complete and first performed opera, Das Liebesverbot, The Ban on Love of 1836, a work that Wagner ultimately rejected, the Master Singers of Nuremberg was Wagner's one and only operatic comedy. Wagner and Verdi, a brief and important comparison. For all their many and seemingly irreconcilable differences, Richard Wagner and Giuseppe Verdi had rather more in common than we might think. They were exact contemporaries, born four months and 19 days apart. Wagner, on May 22, 1813, he died on February 13, 1883, and Wagner on October 10, 1813, he died on January 27, 1901. They were the leading 19th century exponents of their respective operatic traditions, Verdi Italian opera and Wagner German. They were both considered ardent patriots by their countrymen, composers who, each in his own way, actively participated in the creation of their respective nation-states, Italy in 1861 and Germany in 1871. Their nationalism, hatred of tyranny and of enemies real or imagined, played a major role in their works for the stage. Both Wagner and Verdi came to believe that the traditional devices of opera, recitative, aria, and ensemble, were artificial constructs that did nothing but inhibit dramatic development and slow dramatic momentum. By mid-career, they had each gone a long way towards downplaying, if not altogether eliminating, these devices in favor of continuous, orchestrally accompanied music. Of their mature works, they each wrote but one comedy. Wagner, The Master Singers of Nuremberg, premiered in 1868, and Verdi, Falstaff, premiered in 1893. In fact, Master Singers might well be considered Wagner's most Verdi-like stage work. Typical of the Italian operatic tradition, Verdi's operas were, from the beginning, about people and the developing relationships between people in real life 
real-time situations. Typical of the German operatic tradition, Wagner's musical stage works were, almost from the beginning, myth-based works in which supernatural beings shaped the actions and fates of human stereotypes. The one exception among Wagner's mature work is Mastersingers, which lacks any supernatural or magical driver. It is, like Verdi's operas, about people and the attendant sins of pride, lust, envy, greed, and so on that power human relationships. Oh yes, there's love in Master Singers as well, but love isn't funny, whereas slothful, envious, talentless louts like Sixtus Beckmesser, the villain of the story, are another thing altogether. But when we discuss Wagner and Verdi's ambitions and identities as composers, well, that's where our Wagner-Verdi comparison breaks down completely. Verdi wrote operas for a living. He considered himself a high-end craftsperson working in a cutthroat, deadline-driven industry. He was drawn, in particular, to melodramatic stories, a melodrama being, quote, a sensational dramatic piece with exaggerated characters and exciting events intended to appeal to the emotions, unquote, which he set to music before moving on to the next project and the next project and the next, as was required by the opera industry in his native Italy. Wagner wrote musical stage works in order to change the world and bend it to his will. He considered himself nothing less than a creative god whose physical and emotional needs had to be provided for at virtually any cost. Wagner wrote his own libretti, and by the time he hit his stride with Rienzi of 1840, every single one of those libretti was about him. Like his endless prose essays and theoretical tracts and his interminable rants, Wagner's stage works are about himself, his life, his desires, his socio-political, philosophical, and religious beliefs as they evolved across his life. It's a fact, Jack. Every one of Wagner's male title characters is a thinly veiled portrait of himself at that time of his life. He is Rienzi, the last of the tribunes of 1840. He is the Flying Dutchman of 1841. He is Tannhäuser of 1845 and Lohengrin of 1848 and Tristan in Tristan and Isolde of 1859. He is Siegfried of 1871 and he is Parsifal of 1882. I've said it before and here I am saying it again. To those who would have us put aside Wagner the man when considering his extraordinary art, we must respond with a firm, no can do. That's because repugnant a human being though he was, Wagner's art, like his essays and tracts and rants, were all of a single substance, a distillation of the man and his life and his monumental, impossibly narcissistic ego. Nowhere is this more true than in the Master Singers of Nuremberg, in which Wagner's dual 
alter egos, the two greatest master singers, as it turns out, are a brash young dude named Walter von Stolzing and a wise older dude named Hans Sachs. The Master Singers is the most explicitly autobiographical of all Wagner's works, hands down, because at the heart of its story is Wagner's view of his own place in music history. It's a story that turns on the conflict between tradition and innovation and the importance of correct interpretation issues that Wagner considered to be of singular import at the time he wrote the work. In the end, Mastersingers is about Wagner's belief that artistic creation confers nobility all by itself, that a great poet-musician is inherently noble. Wagner's The Master Singers of Nuremberg revolves around Nuremberg's guild of so-called master singers. The guild was an association of middle-class and working-class townsmen, amateur poets and musicians who wrote and performed their own songs. The creation and performance of these songs were subject to a bewildering, hair-splitting series of rules and regulations. The highest rank attainable within the guild was that of master singer a rank that typically took many years of study and competition to achieve. During the course of these competitions, a judge called a marker would put a mark on a chalkboard every time he heard a singer break a rule. Eight such marks, eight such mistakes, disqualified a singer from the competition. In Wagner's The Master Singers, that judge, the marker, is a self-important blowhard who uses his knowledge of the rules to compensate for his own glaring inadequacies. His name is Sixtus Beckmesser. Synopsis. A young knight named Walter von Stolzing arrives in Nuremberg and, as fate would have it, he immediately falls love at first sight, head over heels with Eva Pogner, the only child of the richest man in town, Veit Pogner. Walter discovers that Ava is to marry whichever master singer wins a song contest the following day. He impetuously and scandalously pledges to become overnight a master singer and win tomorrow's contest, despite the fact that his natural talent aside, he is entirely unschooled in the master singer's art. However, with the help of a cobbler and master singer named Hans Sachs, an actual historical figure who lived from 1494 to 1576, Walter is victorious against the other bachelor contestant for Ava's hand, the town clerk and comic villain of the story, the marker, Sixtus Beckmesser. The Rules Central to the Master Singers Guild and art were its rules. So predictably, there is an uproar when this unknown and unschooled Walter von What's-His-Name comes forward and announces his intention to compete as a Master Singer the following day. But as Hans Sachs observes, quote, But once a year, I think it would be wise to test the rules themselves to make sure that in the course of habit their strength has not been lost." Unquote. 
Yeah, this is Richard Wagner speaking loud and clear. For Wagner, pedants and critics were mired in the past. For Wagner, the most gifted of the master singers, meaning himself, understood that the rules must be tested and that the ultimate arbiter of what is right and good should be the community and not an insular guild. This becomes the basic storyline as the action moves forward. The young, brash, uber-talented Walter von Stolzing, uninhibited by the past, by the master singer's rules of poetry and music, represents the future. And only the cobbler and master singer, Hans Sachs, is wise enough to see it. In The Master Singers of Nuremberg, Richard Wagner has, in fact, two alter egos. Like Hans Sachs, Wagner attained artistic and financial security in his middle age. Like Hans Sachs, Wagner would tell us that he too had attained wisdom and maturity in his middle age, points we will not presently argue. Like Walter von Stolzing, Wagner was self-taught and learned his art through experience abetted by genius. Like Wagner, von Stolzing is impetuous, fearless, and convinced beyond question that his own innovative art is superior to the traditions on which it is built. For Wagner, the cobbler Hans Sachs and the young nobleman Walter von Stolzing together encompass, respectively, the best of artistic tradition and innovation. The Contest the Master Singers reaches its climax in its final scene, Act 3, Scene 5, with the contest between Walter von Stolzing and Sixtus Beckmesser for the hand and inheritance of the pert and pouty Eva Pogner. Of course, in the end, Sixtus Beckmesser's evil machinations all come to nothing. Of course he is laughed off the stage. Of course Walter nails his song and slays the crowd, which of course goes nuts. Walter von Stolzing is declared the winner by acclamation and receives the winner's garland and Ava. But when Ava's father, Fight Pogner, attempts to give Walter his necklace bearing the emblem of the Guild of the Master Singers, Walter refuses it outright. He is a proud young man, and his treatment when he first came forward the day before has not been forgotten. Once again, it is Hans Sachs who calms the waters and puts things into perspective. Sachs grasps Walter's hand and sings, quote, Do not disdain the masters, I beg you, but honor their art. It was not because of your coat of arms that the masters have admitted you today, but because you are a poet. So be grateful. How can our art be unworthy if it embraces such a prize as yourself? Our masters have cared for our art in their own way, cherished it, as they thought best, and that has kept it alive and real, if it remained German and true, and if it flourished even in bad times and still retained its honor, what more could you ask of the masters? We must beware. Evil threatens us today, 
And if the German kingdom should decay, if foreign kings should rule our land, no prince his folk will understand, and foreign lies would before us rise to fool and blind our German eyes, if our German art we did betray. So I say to you now, honor your German masters, if you would forestall disasters. Let us take our masters to our heart, even if the Holy Roman Empire were destroyed and fell apart. For us there would still remain holy German art." Unquote. Hans Sachs's German jingoism does the trick. Humbled, Walter accepts Pogner's chain, while his victory wreath is placed on the head of Hans Sachs, as the people repeat in chorus Sachs's last seven lines, adding finally at the end, Hail Sachs, Nuremberg's dearest Sachs. Conclusions the Master Singers of Nuremberg received its premiere in Munich 153 years ago today. In a letter to the Bavarian king, Ludwig II, written immediately before the premiere, Wagner chose to downplay the comic aspects of the work in favor of what he considered its deeper meaning. Quote, it is impossible that you should not have sensed under the opera's quaint superficialities of popular humor, the profound melancholy, the lament, the cry of distress of poetry in chains, and its reincarnation, its new birth, its irresistible magic power achieving mastery over the common and the base." Unquote. Never before, and never again, would Wagner express his personal ideas about art and the artist in a stage work as explicitly as he does in The Master Singers. Hans Sachs is Wagner's idealized portrait of himself as a mature artist, as writes Ronald Taylor, quote, the benevolent overseer of the emotional, spiritual, and artistic well-being of his community, unquote, a community that includes elite masters and the common folk. Walter von Stolzing represents the innovative Wagner, impetuous and passionate, an artist for whom the old rules of yesterday must be tested against the new expressive needs of today. The Master Singers of Nuremberg is, all told, a great show. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.